be reading Matthew 5, verses 38 through 41. You have heard that it, thank you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Thanks, Annie. Good morning, y'all. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao, and I'm super pumped about today's uh, topic. So I hope y'all will journey with me. We're going to do history, but I swear it's going to be fun history. There's going to be visual demonstrations. Um, you'll understand that gesture later. <laughs> um, we are in this series called Imposter Jesus, and, or I'm sorry, it's just called Imposter, Imposter, Finding the Real Jesus, where we're trying to sort out who Jesus is when we have some conflicting messages. Now, a lot of the loudest, most persistent messages in our culture are messages about Jesus who is distinctly American, very white, this kind of cartoon Santa Claus figure who just wants everybody uh, to obey mommy and daddy and follow the rules and not cause any problems. And that does not square with the Jesus that we see in the Bible. Fannie Mae this morning uh, has, has talked through Jesus Rooted, Justice Centered, Radically Inclusive. And um, as, as she said, like the, the rooting of Jesus in the Bible, that's our rock. That's our foundation. So we have to be crystal clear on who that Jesus is, um, especially when we're getting these messages from elsewhere. And so some of that throughout this series means taking on those cultural ideas. Jesus as a rule follower last week, for instance, we talked about and kind of broke that down. I'm um, in challenging them with the biblical picture of Jesus. But sometimes, like today, we have a better known passage that has been used widely but out of context. And this happens to all powerful figures. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is a good example of one. So Martin Luther, G Martin Luther King Jr., whose belief in nonviolence led him to be vehemently anti-military, gets quoted by like the U.S. Marines on Twitter in January, right? And, and out of context, it's like, oh yes, we're all on board with this, but it's actually a manipulation of the, of the content and the overarching message of, of his work. And that same thing happens to Jesus. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about how that same thing happens with the phrase, turn the other cheek. So, um, I want to hear from y'all. What does turn the other cheek mean to you? What have you been told it means, kind of in the broader culture? What's our basic understanding of turn the other cheek? Suck it up. Don't fight back. Be the bigger person. Does that resonate? Yeah? Oh, suppress your instincts and your feelings. Ooh, that one hits home, right? And that is, that is exactly what we've been taught by our culture, turn the other cheek means. And you know what? There are, there are some relatively innocuous ways that that gets applied. Someone cuts you off in traffic, turn the other cheek. You know, someone snaps at you and is really rude, turn the other cheek. And it, you know, it kind of borders on like, kill them with kindness. It's not even that far from a passage in Romans that says, bless, your, or bless, your, bless those who hurt you. Bless those who curse you. So 
in those circumstances, it still, you know, could be Christian behavior, but it's not what Jesus is talking about here. And there are certainly more troubling implications when it is applied elsewhere, especially when it's tied to those um, suppress your feelings and, and your needs, suck it up, which usually means suck up the pain and abuse you're experiencing. So what happens when we tell victims of abuse to turn the other cheek? This has been applied really troublingly by churches to people in situations of domestic abuse and domestic violence. And, and victims have been told, turn the other cheek. And like that is deeply unchristian. To tell a victim of abuse to suck it up and continue to allow themselves to be harmed is deeply unchristian. And it can also be applied systemically. Victims of oppression, especially violent oppression. What would Jesus say to a black trans woman who's being beaten to death in the streets? Would he say, turn the other cheek? No, absolutely not. And we have clear biblical evidence for this because we have a story of, of Jesus encountering a woman who was accused of adultery and was going to be stoned to death. So did he just kind of stand by the side and say to her, turn the other cheek and allow yourself to be stoned to death? No, no, he didn't do that. He intervened in a different and creative and wild and strange way. And some other Sunday, we'll get to talk about that instance of Jesus's creative resistance. But we see in the Bible that there is no evidence that Jesus means, turn the other cheek means be a doormat or allow yourself uh, to be abused, to be victimized by violence. And this standard interpretation which, if you dig a little bit, basically means accept your abuse. It must be wrong. And not only wrong, but when we get something that wrong, it becomes evil. And it perpetrates violence and it allows it to continue. We talk a lot here about trying to interpret the Bible, trying to make sense of this ancient document that has so much context that we're so removed from. And one of the questions that's been really important to me in my study of the Bible, in my interpretation, is whenever I hear an interpretation, whether it's my own or someone else's, I have to ask myself, who benefits? Who benefits from the text being interpreted in this particular way? Because when we say that turn the other cheek means accept your abuse and accept the violence being brought down upon you, Status quo structures of oppression, people in power who want to protect their power, that's who that interpretation benefits. Not the lowly, not the weak, not the folks being hurt, not the victims of abuse. And that doesn't seem very Christian, does it? So let's do some digging today and let's see what this is about. When Jesus is engaging in this conversation about turn the other cheek, and there, there's also in there walk the second mile and give up your coat as well, Jesus is talking about situations where there are huge power differentials. And Jesus spends a lot of his ministry talking about power differentials and how they're wrong and how he has come to flip them, reverse them, do away with them, level the playing field, that all are beautiful, equal, and beloved by God. 
but that the world as it is structured now does not recognize that. And in fact, puts a great deal of effort and often violence into reinforcing a hierarchy of worth. Because all of those power differentials that are violently enforced have at the heart of them some conversation about worth. You are beneath me, is what that violence says. And again, that kind of power, that kind of violence is not Christian. And so we have to figure out how to contend with that. The stakes here are big. We have to get this right. And this is one of the most radical passages in the Bible because fundamental to the gospel is the claim that all are of enormous, infinite worth. So anything that says anyone is less than needs to be challenged. So let's get into the text and see what Jesus is really saying. First, we have to know who Jesus is talking to. This passage comes to us from the Sermon on the Mount. And in general, we know a little bit about Jesus' audience. He's speaking um, in, in, as a Jewish person in ancient Palestine, which was occupied by Rome. So he's in the Roman Empire as part of an occupied people. And the Roman Empire, that's like the big one, right? Up till us. Um, and Caesar is at the top. And Caesar is like one person who owns 50% of the wealth. Caesar owns it all. And he's got like another 10 to 20% of the population that's kind of like varying levels of like his crew that are kind of enforcing the whole empire project and keeping everything in line. So uh, there, there's the, the governing class, the retainer class, scribes, Pharisees, the military, priests, um, all those folks are, are the ones who are landowners. And so cumulatively, they own almost all the wealth. And that's 10 to 20% of the population. That means the remaining 80 to 90% of the population are peasants. And this was a massive disparity. And most people were actually in debt all the time and always at risk of losing what little they had, which was all borrowed from that 10 to 20%. They were also, as I mentioned, an occupied people, and the military that they were encountering all the time wasn't their own military. The military wasn't protecting them from others, it was protecting the Roman Empire from them. And so they had this occupying army every day reminding them that they were less than Romans. This is Jesus' audience. Jesus is speaking to the peasants. These are his people. So, for instance, when Jesus is standing up there and saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom, he's not saying, blessed are the poor. Go find them sometime. See how blessed they are. He's saying, yo, you're super poor, but you're also incredibly blessed. And you know what? The kingdom belongs to you. And lest we kind of get in this place that it's like, oh, well, the Roman Empire, that was like a really bummer time, right? And like, thank goodness we live now here. <laughs> a 2010 uh, study in the Journal of, of Roman, uh, Roman Studies. Uh, some researchers determined that the U.S. economy is more unequal now, or in 2010, than the Roman Empire was at its peak. 
And so if Jesus is talking to the peasants who are poor, saying 80 to 90% of you, yours is the kingdom, in our context, he may very well come and say, blessed is the 99%. But he's engaging folks and telling them that the world is wrong when it orders them as less than. You have worth. You have value. You are perfect in my eyes. You are a child in my family, a child of God. But if he's going to say that, he's got to address how to deal with that day after day degradation and humiliation that they experience at the hands of people who consider themselves superiors. So what do you do when someone treats you like you're worthless and tries to put you in your place? In our culture, we have basically two responses. We can be violent, we can retaliate, we can hate the person who is trying to subdue us. We can try and fight back in the way that they're fighting us. Or we can submit and say, you know what, you're right. I am worthless, I do feel worthless. And hate yourself. Walter Wink, who wrote the book Jesus and Nonviolence, a lot of today's sermon is based on this tiny little book, so if you want um, to investigate that further, you can borrow my copy. Uh, Walter Wink compares this to fight or flight. And actually, I think that flight one might even be more akin to freeze, right? So somebody tries to subdue you, somebody tries to put you in your place violently or otherwise, and our, our instincts that we've been trained in our community about have been either to just fight back, which usually doesn't end well for us, or to freeze and be like, you're right, I'm worthless. And that doesn't end well for us either. So who benefits when those are our only two options? Who benefits when we fight violence with violence of the same nature? Whoever has the biggest guns, right? And that's not usually the peasant class, and that's not usually the 99%, and that's not usually people who have been victimized by violence and, and oppressive systems that have demeaned them. Usually we're on the bottom because we don't have the biggest guns. And so trying to fight back with that same kind of violence just escalates it and we never win. Jesus knows this because in his own culture, there are zealots who are trying this really hard. And it's not going well for them either. And they are getting crucified and just over and over like lining the streets. And so responding to the Roman Empire with violence isn't working. What about that other option? To freeze, to submit, to say, I am worthless and stay in deference to that power that's trying to hurt you. Again, who does that benefit? Obviously the status quo and the abusers. But Jesus is God. So Jesus is not gonna let a little impossibility stand in the way of, of his preaching. Jesus doesn't actually stop at this narrative that we've been given that there are only two options here. Wink calls it the third way, Jesus's third way. So exactly what he says here, we're going to break down, and this is where we're going to get the fun history lessons. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. 
It sounds like he's on team submit, right? Do not resist an evildoer? Yikes. But that's actually a translation issue. Wink talks about it, um, writes about it saying this. When the court translators working in the hire of King James chose to translate this Hebrew word, or this Greek word, I don't know how to say, as resist not evil, they were doing something more than rendering Greek into English. They were translating nonviolent resistance into docility. And that's one of the things that we have to be really careful of is who benefits from the way our texts are translated? Who had the power in order to, to put this down on a paper? Not all of us have the resources to be able to learn ancient Greek. Um, so we have to count on one another and count on scholars who can do that work for us. Um, but this is why we discern things in community to say, because somebody said, do not resist an evildoer. That doesn't sound quite right. And started looking into it and saying, hey, wait a minute. It was actually the king's people who translated it this way. I can see why they would want it to say that, but I sure don't. So he goes on and says, um, essentially, that the, the better translation, from his point of view, um, would be, don't strike back at evil or the one who has done you evil in kind. Or, do not retaliate against violence with violence. And he gives lots of evidence about how that particular word was used to describe military conflicts um, and to, to describe a clash of violence. So what if it's do not retaliate with violence against an evildoer. It sort of changes the tone, doesn't it? And then Jesus gives three very specific examples that make almost no sense in our context. So we're going to talk through them. The first one, turn the other cheek. This is our most favorite. This is the one that's like easiest to kind of imagine. But we have to go back again to who Jesus was talking to because this context matters so, so much. He's talking to peasants, the underclass. And he says something incredibly specific, which is when someone strikes you on the right cheek with their right, or, uh, with their right hand, presumably. So if someone strikes you on the right cheek. Now that doesn't mean anything to us. We're like, oh, he's adding flavor. <laughs> but striking somebody on the right cheek actually meant something particular. You see, in Jesus's culture, you couldn't do stuff with your left hand. It had to do with like bathroom stuff and purity codes and stuff like that, sanitary practices. So you just, you didn't do anything with your left hand. And in fact, um, in, the, in the Qumran, if you gestured with your left hand, you had to do 10 days of penance. So you weren't about to hit anybody with your left hand, which meant that you'd be hitting somebody with your right hand. And if you hit them on the right cheek, you're backhanding them. So if you backhand somebody, that's sending a very specific message. What message does that send? <laughs> I'm not going to repeat that, but that is accurate. <laughs> you are my underling. You are worthless. Get in line. Get in your place. Stop acting up. It is such a demeaning act to backhand someone. If you hit a peer, let's say you, you, you punched or like open, open palm slapped a peer in this culture, this stratified culture, you would have a small fine. If you backhanded a peer, 
the fine was a hundred times more. You could not do that to somebody who was your equal. But you could do it for free to somebody who was considered beneath you. And in that context, in that culture, that meant that any master could hit a slave that way. Any Roman could hit any Jew that way. A husband could hit a wife that way. Any man could hit any woman that way. Parents could hit their children that way. And who is Jesus talking to? Jesus is talking to Jewish peasants, slaves, women. He's talking to people getting hit, not doing the hitting. Though, of course, in a stratified culture, there's going to be overlap there, right? With intersecting identities of oppression and power. So he says, when someone hits you in this way, turn and offer them the left cheek. Again, this is very specific. It's not just offer the other cheek. It's offer your left cheek. So to give you a better sense of what that means, I'm going to ask Charlie to come up so I can hit him in the face. Thank you, Charles. So I promise there will actually be no hurting of Charlie in this demonstration. Deep breaths. So, but if, if Charlie is someone who I consider beneath me and culture considers beneath me, and I want to put him in his place, I want to demean Charlie, I'm going to backhand him. Yeah. And that's what Charlie is expected to do, is to kind of cower, right? To be put in his place. Now, if when I do that, instead he offers me his left cheek and stays upright, right, offers the left cheek, now I'm in this weird position. I can't backhand him with my left hand because that's unclean and there would be a huge penalty for that. I can't backhand him with my right hand, like his, his, his face is in the way, right, I can't hit it, right, and I can't, so now I'm put in a position where if I want to hit him again, I have to hit him with an open palm or a fist of my right hand, which is how you would hit an equal. Can everybody give Charlie a round of applause? Thank you so much, Charlie. So in that situation, Charlie is saying, I will not be demeaned. I know you're going to hit me. Hit me as an equal. I am not your underling. I am not worth less than you. I am here as a human being, a child of God, and if you are going to hit me, you better recognize that I am an equal to you. And what that also means is that it is a challenge to the person being abusive to recognize their own humanity. I am a human being just like you. Act like it. Why are you acting less than what God made you to be by treating me as though I am less? than what God made me to be. So this is a very defiant act. This is a radical act. It is a demand to be recognized. And so this is not being a doormat. This is not laying down. This is not taking it. This is definitely not accepting it. This is defying violence in a creative way, in an impossible situation where retaliating with violence will get you killed. And cowering is just not an option because God doesn't want us to be demeaned. This is a third way to say, no, I am not less. Recognize my humanity, remember yours, and live into it. 
So this second example that we're going to talk about is walk a second mile. And again, this is kind of, this has become um, sort of like an empathy saying, walk a mile in my shoes, right? Just imagine what it's like to be that poor Roman governor. So this, this material has been used again to say like, well, you know, uh, but I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing here. This was a very specific practice because an occupying army had the right to demand that anyone that they were occupying, so any Jewish peasant, to just hold, like, take their pack and walk with it for a mile. So it was standard practice. But there was a limit. You could only go one mile. So if the Roman army was saying, well, I'm tired. Grab that guy. He's going to carry my pack. And they're treating people like cattle. And it's something that people had no control over because it was legal. But you could only do it for one mile. And so Jesus is saying, show them your humanity by taking your agency back. Go a second mile on your own choice. Show them how absurd it is that they're making you carry their stuff. Put them in a position to feel bad. Put them in a position to try and ask for their stuff back from you because they're going to break the law by having you go two miles. Take it back into your own hands. Take back your dignity and your humanity. Some of you know that I spent some time in prison over civil disobedience, and I had the honor of getting arrested with a number of religious leaders. Luis Barrios is an Episcopalian priest, and uh, I'll never forget uh, one of the stories that he told as we were being detained. It had come up that he had been arrested more than once, and so he told us about the time of his first arrest. He was 13, living in, in Puerto Rico, where he's from, and his Catholic priest had invited him to trespass onto the military base there. And he was like, well, I'm going to get arrested. And this, this Catholic priest said to him, Luis, you are poor, you are dark-skinned, they're going to find a way to arrest you anyway. Do it on your own terms, for your own reasons, and don't ever allow them to hold that threat over your head again. And so he did. As a kid, he got arrested as an act of political defiance. And he understood what the terms of that were, and he came through to the other side. And then, before he got to me, where we also got arrested for trespassing onto a military base, he had been arrested more than 50 times, all his own choice, all on his own terms for his own purposes. Luis had taken back his own choice, agency, and dignity, had declared his humanity and his purposes. It was an act of defiance to walk a second mile, to demand to be recognized. And this third example we have of giving your cloak in court this is the most confusing, I think, for our culture, but I think that it's more of a wardrobe issue than a theology one, because we don't do like the coat cloak situation. But basically, at this point, you had two garments you were wearing. Your coat was your inner garment, and your cloak was your outer garment. And we're talking about debt here. So as I mentioned before, most of the people that Jesus was talking to would have been in debt or in fear of debt all the time. That meant that they often defaulted, which usually had to do with the weather and how the crops were doing. So they had no control over that either. 
And so when they were defaulting, they were getting dragged into court. And usually, if they were very poor, the only thing they had left to put up for collateral was their cloak, their outer garment. Now, if you're suing somebody for the clothes off their back, that's a pretty demeaning and awful thing to do to somebody. But it obviously happened a lot. So Jesus says, when someone is suing you for your cloak, for the coat off your back, give them your coat as well. And Jesus is basically saying, when somebody sues you for the shirt off your back, give them your pants too. And Jesus is being funny here because he's actually evoking an image where you'd be standing naked in court. And this is absurd. And it's meant to do a couple of things. One, it's meant to put uh, the folks suing you in a really bad position because it's actually illegal in this culture to look on someone else's nakedness in public. So they can't look at you. But the other thing it's meant to do is to demonstrate the depth of the cruelty of this system, to expose what is actually at stake, to say, this is not normal. You are taking everything from me. And when I hear this passage in scripture, I always think of one story. Peggy and John, members of this community, are um, also members of Christian peacemaker teams. They've spent a lot of time in Palestine, in occupied Palestine. And there's a friend they have there. His name is Jabbar. Jabbar belongs to a community whose homes are repeatedly demolished by the military. And and they're being pushed out, but they've been there for generations. And so Jabbar keeps rebuilding his home with his family. But one time, when they hadn't rebuilt a permanent home yet after the last demolition, they were living in tents. And the military came to destroy even those tents. And when the military was trying to destroy his tent, his infant son was inside. And so he ran into the tent, and he grabbed his son, and he came out to the military officer and shoved his son into the officer's arms and said, if you're going to take our home, take my baby too, because where am I going to raise him? He was charged with assault with a baby. Because it was this absurd situation, and they were like, ah, uh, what do we, how do we even make sense of this? And he ended up in court dealing with this charge of assault with a baby. And the judge, hearing this story, just dropped it all and said, go. Because what do you do? What else can you do except be invited again into your own humanity and say, this cannot stand? This is no way for us to be to one another. So this theater of the absurd that we are asked to participate in is about exposing cruelty by drawing attention to our humanity. Recognize my humanity and yours. I will not submit to your abuse, to your demeaning behavior. I will not tell you that I am worthless. I will not submit, I will not react with violence. I will not demean you. It's not demeaning to you to do this either. It's actually honoring you, inviting you to act, act as who you are, a beloved child of God, because your behavior does not reflect that when you are being an abuser. And this is hard 
This is really, really hard stuff. This is not an easy answer. Turn the other cheek in this context is not simple, it's not hard, and it's not without suffering. And we see this play out in our world today. We see people capturing on video violence of police officers gunning down unarmed black folks in the streets. And that cry, Black Lives Matter, at some level, saying that, having to say that, is absurd. This is theater of the absurd. But we do to point out that the abuse of a system that criminalizes and violates black bodies is not Christian, is not right. It demeans people. And so it calls out the worth. And it says, black folks are worthy, our beloved children of God. And the systems and people that target them are not acting like beloved children of God. Black lives matter. This is the creative resistance. And no, it doesn't always work immediately. And also, it moves people and it reclaims dignity. This invitation into nonviolent creative resistance, this is what fueled the civil rights movement in our country. It's what fueled Gandhi's work, that same spirit of exposing cruelty and inhumane behavior, but it doesn't come without cost. And it's often the cost of the pain of victims being put on display. Austin Hartke recently spoke um, in, in our community in Wisconsin, uh, and he's a scholar uh, who does work on trans identity. And he was talking about the passage where Jesus after having been risen, comes to his disciples. And Thomas is having a hard time believing. He's like, I just, I don't, I don't get it. And Jesus says here, stick your hand in my wounds. See the pain that I've been through, feel it. And Thomas believes. And then after that, Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. This is not the ideal way. God would not want us to have to expose our pain in order to gain dignity and freedom. Blessed are those who do not see our pain, who don't have to have our pain on display and yet see us as fully human. But while we are in this broken world, instead of fighting back with violence, instead of submitting to evil, this creative third way of resistance, this reclaiming of our humanity and dignity, this is the power that God offers us to have a third way through. Love your enemies is a radical and transformative and healing teaching, but it is hard. So I want to ask you, has anyone ever told you you were worthless? Are there people, are there systems, are there institutions in your life that deny your leadership, your humanity, your wholeness, your perfection because of the color of your skin, because of your gender, because of your orientation, because of your legal status? Are there people in your life 
that treat you as less than just because. What do you do about it? What are you going to do about it? We know we can't retaliate with violence, but we know that we should not submit to our own abuse. So what does it mean in your context to find that third way of Jesus, to pray for those who hate you with the fullness of your dignity, to demand to be seen and loved for the incredible child of God that you are. Will you pray with me? God of resistance, God of subversion, God of hard teachings. Please be with us as we struggle to internalize the power you have given us, the humanity you have given us. God, we long to be fully human. We long to be free from abuse. And God, we will not let the world lead us astray into violence or into self-hatred. So God, show us that third way. Inspire us into creative resistance. Call us back to our humanity and make us whole. Amen.